John. Boy, it is a privilege to uh, be with you today, and I am so excited for the future of Wellspring. Uh, it is cool to see how far God has brought you already, and I've, I've been in the uh, new facility once, but that was before any of the transformations started taking place, and uh, I'm going to be visiting this week with Jason to get a, a fresh view of uh, the work that has progressed, and we're so excited that in a very short time, you're going to have uh, you know, more or less permanent facilities uh, for you to uh, enjoy and grow into and minister from into the community. It, it is true that it, I'm the guy who's responsible for going to Jason and kind of nudging him out of the uh, cozy bayside nest and telling him that maybe he and Ava should think about planting a church. And he was very resistant at first. I said, no, I don't think that's me. And I said, just go to a church planter assessment and, and let them decide whether you're cut out to plant the church. And so I, I remember about midweek at that church planter assessment, I saw Jason and Ava kind of sitting off having a really serious conversation. And um, I, I was wondering, are they having marital problems or what's going on here, you know? But uh, I went up to them. I said, you guys okay? And they said, yeah. They said, uh, you know, we, we didn't think that we were to plant a church when we first came here. But we're in agreement that we need to plant a church, and, and we're going to do it in Tom's River. And I, and I thought, that's cool, you know, because that's exactly where we wanted to plant a church. So that lined up pretty well. And, um, and, and it was so, so great to see their heart. And, and then what God has done in the years since in, in putting that fire in Jason's belly, uh, you know, not just to plant a church, but to reach Tom's River. And uh, all of you are part of that, and we're so grateful for your participation in it. So how many of you love a Jason and Ava? All right. You're welcome. And, and if you don't love them so much, uh, I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> now, really, uh, we, we love Jason and Ava, what they're uh, all about, what they're doing here. One of the things I really love about Jason is that he's a guy who gets grace. He's a guy who uh, loves Jesus, and he serves out of a heart of gratitude. Uh, Jason is all about how we get to, not about how we have to. Has anybody ever been a part of a church that was more about we have to? You know what that's like? The church of my earliest upbringing was like that. It was a, a church that was more about the we, we have to. So they got the gospel, you know, the first part of the gospel, right, that, you know, in order to go to heaven, you have to have your sins forgiven, so put your faith and trust in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins and rose again, you know, victor over sin and death, and, and, and you know, they wanted you to get saved. But once you got saved, it was like the rest is up to you now. You've got to try real hard to live the Christian life. You've got to be a good Christian. And so the pastor's job was mainly to lay down the rules and then enforce them. Uh, I don't know about you, but that's not the kind of job I'd like to have. But that was uh, how it was kind of set up. It was about how we have to. It was about enforcing the rules. There are a lot of people who think that's what the Christian life is all about. You know, you've you got to keep the rules. You've got to try hard, and, and if you have a hard time keeping the rules, well, then you've got to just try harder. And if you mess up, well, shame on you. You know, you're going to get judged. If that's what you think the Christian life is about, I'm here to tell you, you're missing out. You're missing out on the best part. Following Jesus is so much more than that, so much better than that. And that's why I love the title of your series, Pursue Better, because that's exactly what Paul is trying to get across to the, Galatia, the Galatian believers in his in his uh, book, Galatians, that you've been studying together. This is about new Christians who are trying to figure out how to live the Christian life. 
And Paul has come along, and he's, he's shown them the gospel and how they can have new life with God through faith in Christ. And, and then he moves on to the next town, which was kind of his pattern. He plant a church and then move on, plant a church and move on. And he's moved on to the next town, and these people have come in behind Paul that are sometimes referred to as Judaizers. Now, these are folks who would come along and say, oh, hey, you know, Paul told you about Jesus. That's good, man. Yeah, you trust in Jesus? Good start. Now you've got to keep the rules. And you've got to get circumcised, and you've got to eat kosher, and you've got to keep the Jewish holy days, and you've got to, you know, keep this whole list of laws. You've got to follow the rules. I mean, how else do you expect to restrain people's sinful nature if you don't give them rules to keep? How else do you expect to please God? And so once you become a follower of Jesus, then the essence of Christian living is about keeping all the rules. But Paul says that's wrong. That kind of teaching is going to lead to all kinds of crazy stuff. It, it's going to uh, take away your freedom in Christ. It's going to lead to quarrels about, well, which rules do we have to keep? And, and who's keeping the rules best? And, and it's going to lead to all kinds of judgments on each other. You're not keeping the rules well enough. You need to keep the rules the way I keep the rules. And so it became a, a real problem in the church. And Paul's trying to correct this and, and help them understand that's not the way to live the Christian life. And somebody says, well, if you don't have rules, then how is sin going to be restrained? How are people going to become holy? How are people going to live righteous lives? Isn't keeping the rules, isn't that the right way to live the Christian life? And what Paul is telling us in our next installment of Galatians, we're picking up right where Jason left off last week. We're in Galatians 5, verse 16 today. And what Paul is telling us in this section is that the way to live the Christian life is not by keeping the rules, but to live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. The very opening verse of the passage says it so plainly, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you live by the Spirit and the way He empowers you to live, then you won't go on giving in to the desires of the flesh that the law tries to restrain but never can. Live by the Spirit, Paul says. Now, what does that mean? Well, first you have to understand that everyone who is a true follower of Jesus has the Spirit of God living in his or her heart, in his life her life. It says in uh, Galatians chapter 3, for instance, Paul says, you receive the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. In Galatians 4, 6, he said, uh, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's because you've got God's Spirit in your hearts as a son or daughter of, of God that you're able to relate to God as Father yourself. You're able to relate to him as if he were your daddy. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, Paul has said. Believe in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. The spirit takes up residence in your life, assuring you that you actually are God's child. And then the spirit empowers you to live a whole new life in Christ. And that's all really great except for one thing. The moment the Spirit of God comes to take up residence in your life, you begin to experience a conflict that you never had before. Because you know those old cartoons where you had the, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder, and one is telling you this and the other is telling you that, and the angel always was to represent your conscience, right? Well, it's not just your conscience that the devil is at war with. 
Uh, now it's the Holy Spirit himself. So you've got your sinful, selfish nature, and now the Spirit of God comes to take up residence in your life, and that sets up a conflict between you and your will and the Holy Spirit and what God wants for you. And it's a much more intense conflict than you ever experienced before. Let, let me show you what that looks like this way. There's a guy I knew by the name of Chris. Uh, Chris had lit a, lived a very rough life. Uh, he'd been kicked out of his house by his parents when he was a teenager because he was so rebellious and in so much trouble, they didn't know what to do with him. So he pretty much lived on the streets from the time he was maybe, I don't know, 15 years old or so. And uh, he kept getting into trouble. He was into alcohol and drugs. He kept getting in trouble with the law. He kept getting into fights. If you saw Chris, you could tell that he was a brawler because his face was all marked with scars. His nose was all bent from fights that he'd been in and apparently lost. Uh, but Chris was a tough guy. But he came to faith in Jesus. And I'll never forget one day he sat in my office and he said, Dave, there are a whole bunch of things I used to do that never bothered me, but I, now I feel like I can't do them anymore. Where'd that come from? It wasn't because his pastor was saying, Chris, uh, now that you're a follower of Jesus, here are all the rules you've got to keep. Uh, I didn't know half the stuff he was into, so I didn't know half the stuff I should be telling him not to do, right? But it was the Spirit of God who was at work in his heart, convicting him that, you know what? Chris, there's a better way to do this. There's a better way to live. You need to put this aside, and, and, and God's going to guide you. In, I'm going to guide you into a, a better way to do this. Now, that's the conflict that Paul is writing about here. Look at verse uh, 17, for instance, where he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So what's that saying? It's saying when, when you become a Christian, the old sinful nature doesn't just kind of roll over and give in and, and go away. It begins to fight for its life. And the Spirit takes up residence in your heart, but the flesh is going to battle the Spirit for mastery of the house. The two are incompatible, and one of them has got to win out. It's kind of like when Diane and I got married and we compared our respective family traditions of celebrating Christmas. So my house, uh, what I was used to growing up was what I call slash and burn Christmas, which means, um, well, my parents always had an artificial tree with white twinkle lights, no tinsel, and, uh, and we, we never could wait until Christmas morning to open presents, so we always opened them Christmas Eve. We just didn't have any impulse control in my family, apparently. And so right after Christmas Eve service was done, everybody would rush home, and as soon as the last person was in the room, the presents would start to fly from under the tree. And, and, and you'd get a present, you know, kind of come at you from across the room. You'd rip it open. You'd see what it was. You'd put it aside because the next one was coming at you. And it was kind of this, this orgy of, of ripping open wrapping paper, and paper was flying, and, 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 and it was over in like five minutes. And then you'd sit there with this pile of wrapping paper and a stack of presents, and then you'd hold up... Oh, thank you uh, for that pink sweater you gave me. I'm going to love wearing this, you know. That was our slash and burn Christmas. It was a real shock to the system. First time I went to Diane's home with her for their family Christmas, um, very different. They had a real tree with big colored lights and lots of tinsel. And uh, they could wait, actually, they had enough impulse to, uh, control to wait until Christmas Day to open their presents. In fact, 
The first year I went there, they actually waited till after Christmas dinner to open the presents. And they brought all the dining room chairs around the tree and put them in a nice circle. And Dad Edelman went under the tree, and he'd take a present for each person, made sure everyone had one on their lap, and then they'd take turns, one at a time, opening their presents, neat and tidy. Not slash and burden, but neat and tidy. And, and one person would open a present and hold it up, and everybody would ooh and ah, and the person could say thank you to the person who gave it to them, and it was all very nice. So when we had children, we had to decide, which is it going to be? Is it going to be slash and burn? Is it going to be neat and tidy? Or are we going to figure out some, com you know, some compromise in between? And so here's what we decided. We had a real tree with big colored lights, lots of tinsel. We opened our presents on Christmas Day, neat and tidy. Because after all, you know, like the t-shirt in the department store I once saw, if a man speaks in a forest and there isn't a woman there to hear him, is he still wrong? <laughs> well, I figured out, after all, that that's actually the way I preferred it, too. I just had never been exposed to doing it that way. It, it, it's felt to me a whole lot better way to open presents that way uh, on Christmas Day. It was a lot more sane. But the point is that we had two traditions and they were incompatible. One had to win out over the other. And that's kind of like what's going on in your life when you become a follower of Jesus. you got that old, selfish, sinful nature that's demanding its way, and then the Spirit of God comes into play, and, and he's saying, it's time to let me be master of this house. And, and now you've got this battle for control going on. And, and, and whether the Spirit wins out or the sinful nature wins out depends upon which we choose to follow. So... Again, back to verse 16, that's what Paul is saying. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. It, it, the way to overcome the, the sinful nature is to let the Spirit of God have his way. And the, the verb tense there literally is go on walking by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. It's a need for a continual choice, a moment-by-moment -moment choice to day by day let the Spirit of God have his way in your life. In verse 18, Paul calls this uh, being led by the Spirit. If we, there it is. If, you're not, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. This is very different from being under the law, Paul is saying. Being led by the Spirit is very different from being under the law. The law is this futile attempt from the outside to demand obedience. The problem with the law is it demands obedience, but it has no power to make you obey. To be led by the Spirit is to be transformed from the inside so that I love the things that God loves and I learn to hate the things that God hates and I begin to want for my own life the very things that God most wants for me. It's the difference between being made to obey and being made to want to obey. If you live by the Spirit, Paul says, you won't go on gratifying the desires of the sinful nature. If you yield to him, the Holy Spirit will overcome that sin nature in a way the flesh never could, or in, in a way that the law never could. Whether the spirit wins out or the flesh wins out depends upon which you choose, in essence, to, to follow, to give way to. So Billy Graham used to tell a story about an Eskimo fisherman. And this Eskimo fisherman would come to town uh, with his two dogs, one a black dog and the other a white dog. 
and he had taught these dogs to fight on command. And every, every week he'd come into town, and the dogs would fight. And one week the black dog would win, the next week the white dog would win. There was no telling any given week which dog would win. But the fishermen would take bets on which dog would win, and the fishermen always won his bets. And, and his friends said, how do you do that? I mean, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to which dog wins, but you always seem to know which one's going to win. He said, that's easy. All week long, I feed one and I starve the other. Whichever one I feed is stronger, and he's the one who always wins. And so the question is, which nature are you feeding? Are you feeding your old, sinful, selfish nature? You know, just letting it be fit, uh, uh, fed with all the, the garbage and and craziness of the world, in, in that case, you're going to continue to get what the flesh desires. But if you set your mind and your heart on the things of the Spirit, he'll give you victory over the sinful nature. God's word is saying there's a choice to be made here. Live by the Spirit. Now, why is this so important? Well, Paul, I think, shows us in this passage it's important for two reasons. The first reason it's important that we live by the Spirit is because living by the Spirit is the only way to overcome the worst in us. Living by the Spirit is the only way to overcome the worst in us. You know, a lot of people when they're trying to overcome a bad habit or something that's like self-destructive, you know, what are they going to do? They're going to try to exercise willpower. But guess what? My willpower, my fleshly willpower is no match for temptation. The only way to overcome the worst in us is to be led by the Spirit, to be, to be filled with, to, to be walking in the Spirit. Look again at, uh, well, verse 16. It, it says, says it all. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about desires of the flesh? Those, those Gross things that need to be overcome in our life. Well, go to verse 19, where he talks about these things. He says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. They're evident. They're things like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Now, Paul leads off with kind of this list of, of sexual sins. Sexual immorality is the word porneia in Greek, which sounds a lot like what? Pornography, right? That's the word from which we get our English word pornography. But it's not just pornography. It's not just looking at lewd images. Porneia in, in Greek had to do with any sexual act, any sexual relationship outside the bonds of marriage. So extramarital sex, premarital sex, you know, hooking up outside of marriage. That was, was porneia. Uh, he says the acts of the sinful nature, what the, what the Spirit of God can help you overcome, includes impurity. Uh, moral uncleanness in thought and word and deed. So not only does the Spirit help you overcome wrong spiritual acts or f uh, sexual acts, but wrong sexual thoughts, a wrong sexual mindset. It includes uh, sensuality. That's an open, shameless display of all such acts. You know, like our society is, is so sensual, isn't it? I mean, it's not enough that people are engaged in sexual immorality all, all the time, but then we put it on TV for our primetime entertainment, you know, and we celebrate it. Paul says, you know, if you're, if you're walking in the Spirit, that's the kind of thing the Spirit will help you overcome. If you live by the Spirit, you won't go on gratifying the desires of the sinful nature. 
sensuality, sexual immorality, impurity. And then he goes on in verse 19 to talk about, uh, you could call these religious sins uh, that we, we commit in the flesh. Idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of created things over the creator. Anytime you put something that God has given you ahead of God himself, you become an idolater. And in our sinful flesh, we do that all the time. We worship money. We worship self. We worship our careers. We worship even our kids. And, and, and we put them ahead of God. And God says, if you, if you walk in the Spirit, the Spirit will help you put things in their right place. It, it will help you overcome sorcery. What's sorcery? Well, this is uh, the Greek word pharmakeia. What's that sound like? Or English word what? Pharmacy, right. So this has to do with um, making of magic potions, uh, use of drugs, if you will. How many of you believe that uh, drug use is a gateway for the devil's activity in your life? Isn't it? I mean, that's what Paul is saying. The, the works of the sinful flesh are evident. They include sorcery, pharmakeia. That's the kind of thing that the Spirit of God will help you be done with in your life. Uh, if social sins, it goes on in verse 20 to talk about enmity. That's hostility, strife, jealousy, you know, wanting what someone else has. Uh, drunk, uh, envy, uh, drunkenness. I'm sorry, I missed a couple there, didn't I? Uh, jealousy, fits of anger. That's, that's uh, rage or outbursts of selfish anger. You want to see rage? Just get on the Garden State Parkway and get in the left lane and go about 55. You'll see rage. But it, it simmers just below the surface for so many people these days. We live in an angry society. Maybe there's a lot of anger just bubbling up in your soul, too. The, the Spirit of God, if he's, if he's in control, he'll help you overcome that. Uh, it, it, uh, these acts of the flesh uh, include rivalries. That's selfish ambition and dissensions or feuding, uh, divisions, uh, factions and quarreling, envy, resenting the good fortune of others. I mean, this sounds like our society today, right? We live in such a divided society. People are just at each other and, and, and angry toward each other all the time. That's evidence of the flesh at, at work in our hearts. Uh, it includes, look, look at the rest of the list, drunkenness and orgies, getting high, getting drunk. Orgies is, is wild, out-of-control partying. You know, it's interesting to me that drunkenness is part of that list. I mean, it's obvious that it should be part of the list because so much of the other things we've been talking about happen when people are drunk or high, right? I mean, people get, you know, drunk, they get out of control, they, they, uh, they lose control of their, of their temper, they, they engage in brawling, they might engage in sexual activity that they wouldn't normally engage in if they, they were sober. And, and he says that the works of the flesh include drunkenness, orgies, and the like, and the like, or things like these. In other words, this isn't an exhaustive list, but you get the idea, right? This is the kind of ugly stuff that will creep into our lives if we are living out of our own selfish, sinful natures. This is the kind of stuff, the sewage that our lives will produce if we're not walking in the spirit, but walking in the flesh. And Paul goes on in the rest of verse 21 to say, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When people continually live this way, that these kinds of things are characteristic of their living, 
you can be pretty sure that they don't belong to Christ. You can be sure, pretty sure that they're not part of the kingdom because they're not showing any evidence of the, of, of the Spirit of God dwelling in them and, and transforming them. There's no evidence of his rule in their hearts. That's why Paul is saying, live by the Spirit. It's the only way to get rid of this stuff. The only way to overcome the worst in us is to live by the Spirit. But I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You won't do these things anymore. And I dare say, you live by the Spirit long enough, you won't even want to do those things anymore. He'll take the very want to for that stuff out of your life. But here's the other reason why it's so important that we live by the Spirit. The first reason was, it's the only way to overcome the worst in us. The second reason is, it's the only way to produce the best in us. The only way to produce the best in us is to live by the Spirit. What brings out the best in us is not a list of rules and then trying to keep them. The law is powerless to change us where we need to be changed the most, and that's where? In the heart, inside. And we just talked about the works of the flesh, of the sinful nature that naturally come from us. In contrast to that, look at verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is... Now, here, here we're going to see what the Spirit produces, contrary to what the flesh produces, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. Let's, let's go back and look at those again because they're so beautiful. This is what God wants to produce in your life, the fruit of the Spirit. This is the, the fruit that comes from being under his control, letting him have his way. And notice that it says the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit. It's not like these are fruits that we can pick and choose from. You know, I have a little bit of love, you know, I have a little bit of goodness and maybe some self-control. And, and the rest, you know, I just don't like those so much. No, this is a unity of qualities that, that God wants to work into our lives because we need them all. We need them all if our lives are going to be as beautiful as God would have them to be. Now, first of all, we need love. The greatest of all virtues. The greatest of these is love, Paul says. Love is that sacrificial willingness to put the needs of another ahead of myself. Now, Jesus was the best illustration of that, right? When he put our needs ahead of his own and took our sin upon himself and died on the cross to pay for your sin and mine. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's the kind of love that Jesus had for us. That's the kind of love the Spirit of God wants to put in our hearts, that we would care about others in such a way that we'd be willing to put their needs ahead of our own. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy is the sheer exhilaration that comes from knowing that I am a much-loved son or a much-loved daughter of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and no one can take that away. That's joy, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Peace is the inner tranquility that I have when I know that I have a Father who loves me, and He is at work in everything for my good. Love, joy, peace, patience. Uh, patience, uh, well, patience is what you need when you're on the parkway and somebody's going 55 in the left lane. Patience is forbearance. F patience is uh, an ability, a willingness to put up with the faults of others. 
to put up with others when they let you down or they hurt you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Kindness is uh, behaving toward others as God has behaved toward me. So in such great kindness when he has showered me with his love and his mercy and his grace. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Goodness is generously wanting what's best for you, what's best for someone else. And then there's faithfulness. Faithfulness is, is the fruit of the Spirit's work in your life. Faithfulness is, is trustworthiness. It's reliability. Who doesn't want to be known as trustworthy, right? The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. And then there's gentleness. Gentleness is uh, not, you know, kind of, well, gentleness sounds weak. Who wants to be gentle, you know? Our society says, you know, you need to be tough. Well, guess what? When you are a godly person, when you are controlled by the Spirit, you're not weak. You're strong, but you're gentle. Gentleness is simply strength under control. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, and it's finally self-control. Uh, self-control is not just willpower, but it's the ability to actually have victory over temptation. It's the victory to put all of those those bad impulses in their place and keep them under control. It's being able to have victory over the sinful flesh. And Paul says, against such things there is no law. Now, the law was given to restrain evil, but these things don't need to be restrained. These are the things that need to be encouraged. And with, here's the cool thing. Without being slaves to the law, those who live by the Spirit live a life that is even better than what the law demanded. When you're living by the Spirit, it's like you're living the kind of life the law was trying to make you live, but it never could because you're being empowered from the inside by the power of God himself, by the power of the Spirit who lives within you. Paul says, live by the Spirit. It's the only way to overcome the worst in us, and it's the only way to produce the best in us. And then Paul reminds us of the choice that we must make. Look at verse 24 where it says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When I put my faith and trust in Jesus, it's like my old sin nature was nailed to the cross with Jesus himself. Remember back in Galatians 2? I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. And Paul's talking about his, his flesh. He's talking about his sinful nature there. I no longer live, but the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When, when Jesus died on the cross, my sinful nature was nailed to the cross with him. It died with him. Some people were telling the Galatians, you've got to have the law to help you fight the flesh. And Paul says, no, the flesh has been put to death already with Jesus on the cross. I need to reckon myself dead to sin. You see, the, the sinful nature needn't control me anymore unless I choose to let it. And that's the problem with a lot of us. The sinful nature's been crucified, but we kind of keep letting it in the back door again. You don't need to do that anymore, Paul says. You're, you're, you, you were crucified with Christ. That old sinful nature's been put to death. Here's how I, I like to think of it. Imagine that you had an enlistment in the Army, and your, your say, two-year enlistment is up, and this is your last day as a soldier in the United States Army, and you are thrilled. And you go into, you know, this office, and you sign some papers, and as of noon that day, you are now a free man. 
free person. You're, you're no longer a soldier. You're a civilian as of that moment. And so you happily pick up your duffel bag and you start walking out to the parking lot to get in your car to drive off of the base the last, for the very last time. And who comes walking up the sidewalk but your old drill sergeant from basic training? This guy of whom you lived in dread for like eight weeks at the, at the beginning of your career as a soldier. And uh, the old drill sergeant sees you come and he gets this evil smile on his face. He says, drop and give me 20, soldier. What's your first impulse? To drop your duffel bag, get down on the ground and give him 20 push-ups. But just as you drop your duffel bag, you remember, hey, wait a minute. I just signed those papers. I'm no longer a soldier in the United States Army. This guy has absolutely no authority over me. And so you, uh, you pick up your duffel bag again. You say, hey, nice try, Sarge, but I'm a civilian now. You can't make me do nothing. And you walk off to the parking lot. You get in your car. You drive in your ba to off the base, and you go home free. I, I think that's how we need to think about ourselves when it comes to the old sinful nature. The old sinful nature is like that old drill sergeant who still wants to boss us around, but we need to keep reminding it that, no, 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 you don't have any authority over me anymore. Paul says in Romans, count yourself dead to sin. Count yourself dead to the old sin nature. It tries to hang around, trying to influence you, but you no longer are under its power. Look at verse 25 where he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Don't be given in to the old drill sergeant anymore. Don't be given in to the old sin nature anymore. It has no power over you. It was broken at the cross when Jesus died. And, and your, your sin nature was nailed to the cross with him. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. What's the point in that? I mean, if, if we've been made alive in Christ by the Spirit, we should line up with the Spirit and do what the Spirit wants to do in our lives. March to His orders. Follow wherever He wants to take us. Because I'm telling you, wherever the Spirit of God wants to take you is going to be good. And, and when we realize that the change in our lives is His doing, as it says there in, in verse 25, there's no reason for conceit. There's no reason for provoking one another, envying one another. We realize that it's his doing, not something we can take credit for, not a matter of, will I keep the law better than you keep the law? Well, then there's no room for judging one another. There's no room for being envious of one another. That's how people behave who keep thinking the law will make them holy. They get all proud and self-righteous, but that kind of competing goes away when instead we encourage each other and we say, hey, let's keep walking in the Spirit. Let's keep letting God have his way. Surrender to the Spirit's control in your life. He's making something beautiful of you. So much of what's wrong in our lives and, and what gets kind of sideways between us will get straightened out if we consistently choose to live, to yield to the Spirit's control. So much more of the beauty God wants for our lives would be fully realized if we would choose moment by moment and day by day to live by the Spirit. D.L. Moody uh, was a great evangelist of the uh, eight, 19th century, and he once used an illustration like this. You thought I had this here because I was maybe going to get thirsty, but that's not the case. All right, so he, he held up a glass, and he said to his audience, you know, this glass is full of air. 
I need to get the air out of this glass. How can I get the air out of this glass? And somebody said, oh, well, you, you attach a suction pump to that baby, and you, and you suck the air right out of there. And, and Moody said, no, you know, I don't think that'll work, because if you create too much of a vacuum in there, this glass is going to shatter. It just won't be able to withstand that kind of vacuum on the inside. And some people gave one suggestion. Somebody else gave another suggestion. And finally, Moody did this. He put the glass down on the table, and he just filled it right to the brim with water. And when it was full, he said, there. There's no more room in that glass for air. And the point that he was making is to say, the victory that we are looking for as followers of Jesus doesn't come by working hard to eliminate habits, you know, trying to empty the glass, but rather by allowing the Holy Spirit to take full possession. Now, how does that happen, practically speaking? Well, it means that I live each day saying, Spirit of God, have your way in me today. Uh, teach me to love the things you love and to hate the things you hate. Teach me to want for my life the things you most want to give me. Keep me from any evil that would grieve you as I give myself to you today. Body, soul, mind, and heart. May your fruit be produced in my life. Lord, give me your love, your joy, your peace your patience, your kindness, your goodness, your faithfulness, your gentleness, your self-control. Let the likeness of your Son be seen in me. Here I am, God. I, I'm like an empty glass, but I'm not empty. I'm full of hot air, full of myself. And, and I don't want to be full of myself anymore. I'm ready for you to pour yourself into me, ready to be so filled with your Spirit that there's no room anymore for my old flesh. May that be our prayer. May that be our passion. Can you imagine what God could do with a church full of people who are ready to live that way? Let's pray together. Lord, you are so gracious. You have made a way for us by your Son, not only to be saved from our sin. But you've made a way for us to be made whole again in Christ. You've made a way for us through the power of your Son not only to have eternal life, but to, to, to live life here and now in victory and in power. To, to live our lives in such a way that we're no longer victims of our sinful nature, but rather we're walking in the victory of your Son. Father, we want that. We want that for ourselves. We want that for this church. We want to be people who, who so live by the Spirit that we, we no longer gratify the desires of the sinful nature, but we bear the wonderful fruit of the Spirit of God and begin to look a lot like Jesus. Lord, have your way in us. Do your amazing resurrecting work 
in our hearts and lives to make us as alive as we can be in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for watching. If this was your first time with us, we hope you enjoyed that message. And if you call Wellspring Church home, different ways to give are listed in the video description below. And please subscribe to our Facebook, Instagram, and this YouTube channel to be kept up in all the newest content from Wellspring Church.